Um, our first passage is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 16. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words or wisdom, but with a de demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish, but we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who loved him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For that human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within. So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we speak of these things in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to them, and they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual discern all things, and they are themselves subtle, subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Matthew um, 5, 5.13-20 You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on the hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under one after... Wait. <laughs> puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lamp stand, and gives its light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your, see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, that not one letter, not one stroke of letter will pass from the law until, it's all, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven.
may ask a couple of questions as we as we begin. Um, we've got a lot of scouts here. We've got some relatively new scouts here. Uh, we've got some cubs. We've got a cub scout right here. So what? What are, are you in the Weeblos? Looks like you are, yeah, because you've got all your all your badges. So let me ask you a question first of all. All, all of you, a question first of all. Um, what is the Scout Promise? Who remembers the Scout Promise? Not just you, but anybody. Who who can recite the Scout Promise? Can anybody do it? Does somebody have their phone on them? And would like to? Matthew, come on, let's go. I promise to do my best, right? That's how it starts, isn't it? Or something like that. Can you, can you do it from memory? Yeah, uh, yeah, that works. <laughs> On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country, to obey the scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. Awesome, thank you very much. Now, I may have the terminology wrong, but what is the scout law? <laughs> Who else knows it? You know it? Come on. You know it? You don't want to ask fight. Come on. So tell us the scout law. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things that, that particularly the, the Scout Law and, 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 and also, the, also the promise, the pledge, um, one of the things that we talked about here in church last week was um, things that are identifiers, things that set us apart. And uh, this is what, where we're, we're kind of going today is we're going to take this to a different level in thinking about identifiers. But all of these things that you have shared with us today, these are all very specific identifiers. They set you apart as a scout. It's not the fact that you're wearing the uniform. Anybody could wear a uniform. Anybody could slap some badges on a brown shirt, right, and say, I'm a scout. Well, no, that's not what makes you a scout. It's not about the, the outward show. It's not about the outward appearance. It's about who you are and who you are becoming and not just the promises you make. Anybody, again, can make promises. Promises are just like clothes. Anyone can make a promise. It's keeping those promises. That's, that's what's important. Uh, there's a beautiful verse that's in, um, in, I think it's in 1 Samuel. 1 or 2 Samuel. It's the, it's the story of when uh, Samuel goes to the town of Bethlehem. And he is looking for the new king. God's told him, go to, go to Bethlehem and find a man called Jesse. And when you find this man called Jesse, um, I want you to get him to bring all his sons. And one of his sons is going to be king, is going to be the next king. So Jesse brings all of, all, all of his sons, seven of them. And they all stand before Samuel. And Samuel goes, he approaches each one. And he hears very clearly, no, this is... This is not to be, this one's not to be the king. No, this one's not to be the king. They're all older, they're all large, they're all strong, they're all very able. They look physically imposing. 
No, not this one. Not this one. All seven of them. And Samuel's a wee bit confused, to say the least. And he goes to Jesse and says, Jesse, do you have another son? And Jesse says, well, there's David. You wouldn't want him. He's out in the fields with the sheep. He's not worth anything. And Samuel says, bring him to me. And as soon as Samuel sees him, God says, this is my man. This is the one for me. And at the end of that passage, there's a little verse that says, God does not look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And what your promise and what your law says is this is who, if not who I am, this is who I want to be. This is who I want to become. And it's about the transformation in the context of the scouts into who you are seeking to become as a, as, as a, as a scout, as, a, as an adult. This is what you are seeking to grow into. So it's about identity, not about the outward appearance. It's about a transformation of the heart through the Boy Scouts, through the BSA, as we become what we say we want to be. And in many ways, as we think in these terms about identifiers, this, this passage, particularly the passage from, from Matthew, this continues to develop the thought of how are, how are we to be identified as, as Christians? How are we to be identified as, as followers of Jesus? Because remember, this passage is specifically addressed to those who are followers of Jesus in the same way that the, that the promise and that the law that the scouts say, that's ident that identifies them. But in the very same way, this identifies those who claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read the passage from Matthew, just a portion of that again. Jesus said in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Christians, my followers, my disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. I think it's very, very interesting that Jesus uses the, the concept of, of salt. He also goes on and talks about light. But I want us to think today very specifically about salt. Because salt has been something I've had to think about uh, in my own personal life, believe it or not, over the past couple of years. Um, two years ago, I, uh, I was at the doctor's and it turns out I have high blood pressure, I have hypertension. Two years ago, I started being pastor here two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Could there be a correlation? Anyway, um, no. The, uh, I, I was two years ago. I was diagnosed with uh, with high blood pressure, and, and and I've had to be very careful. And sometimes I'm more careful than others in in terms of my my salt intake. So salt has to be something that I'm very conscious of. And I, I find it fascinating that Jesus here speaks about salt, uh, and 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 he says to Christians, "You are the salt of." the earth. Now, 
salt, as, as, as it does uh, uh, in, in, in our culture today, salt is something that, that is very important to us. It's important as, a, as part of our diets. Um, it's, it's used for, for uh, still used for preservation. But in the ancient world, um, there were a number of different purposes that salt served. Um, it was used in the context of, of, uh, of um, ritual sacrifices. It was used for, for, for helping to purify the, the sacrifices. Uh, it was used for uh, preservation, as it is today. It was also used, as it is today, for, for flavoring. And as we look at this concept of what, what does Jesus mean when he talks about Christians being the salt of the earth, I think there are these three pieces that play a part in our understanding of what Jesus is talking about. We are called to purity. We're called to preservation or perseverance. And we're called to be a flavor. And these three pieces, they touch on three different aspects of, of who we are as people. First of all, uh, it, 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 it touches on this idea of who we are inside and who we are becoming, okay? It touches also on who it is that's working within us to, to bring about that change, that transformation, to become who we seek to be in Jesus Christ. And it's also about how we put ourselves across to the rest of the world. So these three areas are touched on in terms of purity, in terms of uh, preservation, and in terms of uh, flavor. So first of all, purity. Uh, when we think about purity, uh, very often we think, uh, many of us anyway, we think uh, about uh, our relationships with, with others. Uh, particularly in a marriage relationship, we may uh, think about how we are behaving towards our, our husband or towards our wife and how how our uh, interest beyond that relationship, if I can put it like that, impacts our own relationship with our spouse. When we think about purity, we're thinking about our, the, the sacred nature of our marital relationship. And for some, that's a struggle. For many, that's a struggle. But is that all that purity is about? Is that all that purity is about? Well, I think that's a big part of it. And we do need to acknowledge that. And there are places to have more open and clearer con uh, conversations about that. But let me put that out, that I, I, purity is about our relationships, but it's also about something more, and there are more pieces, I think, in understanding what it means to be pure. I think there's a place in which all of us feel that perhaps purity is not the best word. Perhaps a better word to use is adequacy. There's a point at which so many of us feel inadequate, not just in our relationships, but particularly in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a passage that's directed towards Christians. 
And I think when some of us look at our lives, when some of us look at the way that we're living our lives, when some of us look at how we're seeking to be in relationship with others, there's a point at which we say, I'm so inadequate. I'm struggling to be the person that I know that God wants me to be. I'm struggling to be the type of parent that I really want to be myself. I want to be the type of parent that you see on Pinterest where there's all these beautiful pictures of, oh, try this little craft with your child. Spend this time doing this with your child. And you've got no time to do that. You desperately want to do it, but you've got no time to do it because you go into the laundry room and you purposely close the door because you've got a stack of laundry. You've got whites and darks all mixed up with each other. You just can't get your head around. How am I going to get all this laundry done and still engage with my kids and not give them the iPad and do what my kids need and be the parent that I need my kids to be. We just can't do it. So we end up feeling horribly inadequate as a, as a parent. We see other parents, mums and dads, who look so well put together. Their hair's always done. The, the makeup's always just right. That's the dads I'm talking about. <laughs> No, it's not. Well, it might be, but it's not. Um, we see how, how they, they seem to engage their kids all the time and their children are so well put together. And uh, I, I don't even know if Callum's wearing underpants this morning. <laughs> I trust that he is. <laughs> and we look at these others and we feel so so inadequate that's in a sense to do with our own feelings of of purity in a in a very very real sense and part of the challenge in that is because we measure ourselves against others don't we we're always looking at somebody else and we're saying i can't measure up to them why can't i be just like whoever it is that we're looking at as the measure of our own success, our own adequacy. Well, here's where this is pointing us to. Our purity, our adequacy, is not something that's dependent upon me entirely. I don't know if any of you have spent any time reading through the New Testament. But one of the things that you will find, if you read through any of Paul's letters, any of them, pretty much any of them, one of the things that you will discover as you read through Paul's letters, you will find that when he greets the, the, the people that he's addressing, one of the things that he generally says is, this letter is written to the saints in a particular place. It's written to the saints in Corinth. This is to the saints in Galatia. Now, in some of our Christian traditions, when we think of saints, we think of dead people, don't we? Particularly in the Roman Catholic tradition, particularly in the, in the Episcopal tradition. We, 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 we think of those who have gone on before us, uh, those uh, in, in not just who have died, but those whom the church has designated the role of, of saints. But Paul, when he's writing as a contemporary 
to people in those particular churches, he says, you are saints. If Paul was writing a letter today to the Pluckerman Presbyterian Church, he would address it to the saints in Pluckerman. I wonder how many of us would actually be included in that number. Now, being a saint is not about your behavior. But being a saint is about the one to whom you belong. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a saint. To be a saint comes from the word, the same root word as to be, to be holy. And to be holy means to be set apart. When Paul is writing to the churches, he says, you are the people who are set apart. You're set apart by God. He's chosen, he's made you holy. He has set you apart. So it's, it's, it's not about, in the first place, it's not about our behavior. It's about our position before God. There's a phrase that's used, and I'm going to give you the phrase. It's a big phrase. It's big words anyway. It's called positional sanctification. Before God, that's our position. We are before God, and before Him, we are holy. We are sanctified. God does that. He sets us apart. He makes us his own. That's dependent entirely upon God. Now beyond that, there's a thing that's called progressive sanctification. And that's our part. That is what we do as we strive to become more and more like the one who has set us apart. As we strive to become more and more like Jesus, then we become more and more holy in a sense in our thoughts, in our actions, in our relationships with others, in our relationship with ourselves, As we consider who we are in Christ, the sense of inadequacy that so many of us have is, is pushed to the side because it's not about me anymore. If Jesus Christ has called and chosen me, if I am his child, if he can love me, if he is enough, then does that not make me enough? I'm adequate because Christ has chosen me. Christ has set me apart. You are the salt of the earth. You are enough in the Lord Jesus Christ. Purity. Purity. Salt in the ancient world and today is also something that's used for, for preservation. I've got to be careful how many pickles I eat now. I love uh, dill pickles. And uh, the liquid that's used is a, is, a, is, a, is a salty liquid, isn't it? It's still used for preservation. I remember a number of years ago, um, I took the boys down to Colonial Williamsburg and... Um, uh, there's a, there's a, an old, I don't know how many of you have been down there. I think the scout's getting for free, don't they? Yeah? We, maybe, I don't know. We, you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's worthwhile going down there if you've never, especially since it's free. And I'm Scottish and I love free things. Um, <laughs> if, you, uh, if you go down there, one of the first, when you come out of the, the visitor centre, one of the first things that you see, there's a, there's a farm that's on your, on your right as you're going down the path 
walking all the way around to the actual town itself, the, the main street, there's a, there's a farm right, right there. And um, they, they, they have the horses and they have the, the crops, or some of the original crops that they grew. Um, they have a, a, a smokehouse and they also have a building where not just they, they smoke things to preserve them, but they have barrels of salt where they preserve meats. And we went to Colonial Williamsburg one time and they had just taken a, a, a very particular piece of meat out of the salt barrel and were getting ready to cook it. And it was a hog's head that they had. And it was sitting on the, on the counter, staring at us with wide open eyes, ready to be put in the pot to be boiled, to, to, to make a lovely, flavorful dish. But this, the head had been in a barrel of salt for an extended period of time, and you could still see all the, the remnants of the salt on that. It had been preserved. It had been kept. Now, when we think about preservation, um, one of the challenges for that is how do we keep ourselves? It's related to purity and adequacy as well, isn't it? How do we keep ourselves? Well, again, the answer is that we don't keep ourselves. Part of it is to do with behaviors and part of it is to do with practices and disciplines. But there's also very much a sense in which it's God himself who does the preserving within our lives. Let me share a couple of scripture verses with you. Uh, if you still have your Bibles open, I, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm. First of all, Psalm 31 and verse 23. These are, these are some wonderful promises, okay? If you've got your, your own Bible with you, these are just great reminders of the fact that we don't preserve ourselves. It's the Lord who preserves us. It's the Lord who, who keeps us. In fact, before I read the scripture, as you're looking it up, uh, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a concept in the Reformed faith of which the Presbyterian Church is part called the preservation of the saints, the preservation of, or the perseverance of the saints. And it's not about our own persevering. It's not about our own preservation. It's about God keeping his own people for himself. Those who are called by him, those who are set apart by him, God holds them, scripture says, in the hollow of his hand. And none shall pluck them out of there. They belong to God. God keeps his own. There's this, this verse in, in Psalm 31. is one little verse. Uh, verse 23 begins, Love the Lord, all you his saints. And then it goes on, The Lord preserves the faithful. Psalm 121. Flip over a few pages. If you've got your own Bible, you can underline these. Psalm 121. If you've got a pew Bible... I'm not going to tell you to underline it, but if you'd like to, you can. And so when someone's flicking through the pew Bible, oh, look at that. Isn't that wonderful? There's a promise right there. Psalm 121 and verse 7 says this, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. We're in the hands of God. Look at John 17, one, one, one from the New Testament. John 17 
and verse 11. John 17 and verse 11. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father for the disciples and for Christians. It says this, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. The Lord preserves. It's Jesus' prayer for his followers that the Lord will that his Father will keep them, that his Father will preserve them. God does the work of preservation. There's a final thing that I want to talk about very briefly, uh, and that's flavor. Salt is used for flavor. And I think there's very much a sense in which this really is what Jesus is talking about in this, in this particular passage, uh, because there's the... There's, there's, I mean, not just the suggestion, but there's the very clear statement, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If salt has lost its taste. So Jesus is talking about flavor, and we are called to be flavor in this world. And, and flavor is about influence, isn't it? Uh, there are verses in, in Scripture um, uh, there's a particular verse in, uh, I think it's in 2 Corinthians in chapter 2, that talks about how Christians, not specifically are, are to be the flavor, to the, but to be the aroma of Christ in the world. That's what we are called to do. That's our influence. That's what we are putting out there. Uh, being preserved, uh, being pure, that's about, be, that's about inside. But the flavors, how are we living our lives? Just as the scouts make a promise to live their lives in a particular way. As Christians, we are called to live our lives in a very particular way. And that life that we're called to live is the life of Christ. We're called to be and to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There's a, there's a beautiful prayer that I discovered some time ago that was written by a man called John Bailey. John Bailey was a was a, um, a, a pastor in the Church of Scotland. Uh, he taught in seminary as well. And he uh, put a, a book together uh, many, many years ago, back in the 1950s actually, that was called A Diary of Private Prayer. It's a very thin volume, and there are prayers for morning and evening for every day over the course of a month. And on one of those days, um, he, his prayer is that God would help us become more like his son, that God would help us become more like Jesus. And let me share his prayer with you as we conclude today, as we conclude the thinking about flavor and who we are to become in Christ. Grant that the remembrance of the blessed life that was once lived out in this common earth under these ordinary sides may remain with me in all the tasks and duties of this day. That's a long way of saying, as I go about my daily business, help me to remember all that Jesus did and all that Jesus was, okay? They like to use very full sentences back in the day. Let me remember his eagerness not to be ministered unto, but to minister. In other words, not to be served, but to serve. I think St. Francis said something very similar, didn't he? 
his sympathy with suffering of every kind, his bravery in the face of his own suffering, his meekness of bearing so that when reviled, he reviled not again, his steadiness of purpose in keeping to his appointed task, his simplicity, his self-discipline, his serenity of spirit, his complete reliance upon thee, his Father in heaven. And in each of these ways, give me the grace to follow in his footsteps. Friends, may that be our prayer as we seek to be pure and recognize that in Christ we are and we have enough as we rest in God's hands who will guard us and who will keep us and as we seek to become like Christ in all that we do. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our hymn is 224. We stand as we sing. When I survey the wondrous cross, hymn 224.